Hello and welcome to episode 293 of the Fabulous Pelton Cast. I'm your co-host, Kevin Pelton. And I'm Tristan Carcino. And we are coming to you in different locations. I'm in Seattle, Washington, home of the rain. We'll mention that in a second here. There we go. Because it's been raining a lot. Oh. Uh, and I'm coming to you from Renton, Washington, home of the Super Bowl 48 and only Super Bowl 48 champion Seattle Seahawks. Oh, dear. It's that kind of pod. And we are sponsored, as usual, by our friends at Pagliacci Pizza. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a semi-emergency Seahawks pod because the season is over. <laughs> it, it ended on December 21st, on a Tuesday, as Seahawks seasons often do. Uh, with their loss to the LA Rams, ensuring that they will finish below 500 this season at eight and nine at best. Uh, they are not mathematically eliminated from the playoffs, but there is no realistic path forward for the Seahawks to make the playoffs after tonight's loss. And would have been dicey even if they would have won today. Uh, you know, I think that the path was becoming more and more complicated, even if they were to have won out. Might have been a moral victory, even if they had won out. But, but ultimately, uh, I'll, I'll talk about the penalties later. It, it, by the way, it might have been a Pyrrhic victory if they won out, but that, that's a different issue. We'll get to that too. The game, they lost this game because of two horrific calls by the referees in this game. Uh, obviously, there was the holding call on Bless Austin, who served a valiant effort coming in as quarterback uh, with DJ Reed being uh, put on the COVID. Uh, reserve list earlier this week and then the no call on a pass interference and a ball to DJ Dallas that Russ threw up which was an obvious pass interference and it feels like calls like that have happened to the Seahawks so much this season where we're relying on these one or two moments in so many of these games and really ultimately it is the difference between being either in the playoff hunt comfortably in the playoffs or out of the playoffs where the Seahawks find themselves right now. You're talking about those two calls today. You're talking about the Kevin King interception, the phantom interception in Green Bay by Kevin King. You're talking about the Sidney Jones phantom non-interception that happened against Arizona, the Geno Smith fumble in overtime against the Steelers. All of these tiny, tiny moments, the Titans comeback that Derrick Henry run way back in week two, when we were feeling totally different about the Seahawks team, but these small, small moments that we're relying on and every single opportunity, maybe save for one, there's one moment that I can really think of this season that a a 50, 50 situation went the Seahawks way. Those were all calls. This was Carlos Dunlap batted the ball down against San Francisco, basically ensuring that we even got this far in the playoff hunt. But the reversal of the touchdown for the Cardinals wasn't, wasn't for there Washington a Card- for the Washington football team? Oh, for Washington. Yeah, that was a moment that clearly went for the same Seahawks. thing, though. You take you take that. Boom. Another moment. We have Nick Ballor standing one yard inside on the onside kick. Not part of the play. Not part of the play. Well, and, the and rules then, are the rules. It doesn't matter whether you're how still, far inside I'm just saying, you are. These tiny, tiny moments. And every there's I'm sure that there's times that that has been missed, that a player has stood there and they have not called it, if that makes sense. 
ultimately, like, sure, it's the right rule, I suppose. It's the right call, I suppose. But it is these little moments, and it has meant that the Seahawks team, with Russell Wilson as quarterback, for now a better part of the season, what we could debate whether he was healthy during that time period, are going to finish under 500 in one of the few seasons of Russell Wilson in his prime. And ultimately, when you rely on these small moments to try to win football games, when the margin for error is so razor thin, you have assigned yourself so little chance of victory in every other aspect of the game. You've been outplayed in basically every single one of these games, right? There's not one game that you can point to aside from like the Houston victory or whatever, where the Seahawks went in and outplayed a team that is better than them. The LA tonight, there's no way that you can look at this game statistically and say that the Seahawks outplayed the LA Rams in this game. We're trying to win these games because of these razor thin margins. And ultimately those razor thin margins and the Seahawks needing those, not getting them this year, but needing those margins to win games is why Pete Carroll and John Schneider should be fired. Oh, wow. Wow. I did not get, expect this to be the take. That is, I'm not even going to have to give my rant about how limited win probability actually was made up by these two calls tonight. <laughs> the, when you're playing football in this way, when you're trying to shorten the game or whatever, punting constantly, like setting up your defense to give up tons of yards, but not give up points. Ultimately, the defense has been lucky to not give up more points. And we saw that today when, you know, there's the Cooper Cup touchdown. It's like, well, defense tightens up in these great situations. It's like, thanks, Brock. And then boom, touchdown to Cooper Cup or whatever. And you're just like, that is not actually something to rely on as a strategy for a football team. And the things that Pete Carroll's offense and defense rely on are unrepeatable things. They had one of the best rosters in the NFL, one of the best rosters possibly in NFL history, debatably at the beginning of this run. I think certainly they had, in, this, in the salary cap era. They had, <laughs> since, the, since the helmets weren't leather, they had well, Russell in Wilson. The, in the 80s, there was no salary cap. So the, the Niners in particular had some pretty loaded fucking rosters back then. They had Russell Wilson in his absolute prime after that. And they got by by having a very good Russell Wilson. And now they have gotten to the point where there's still a very good Russell Wilson. But if anything goes awry for this football team, it means that they're going to lose games and miss the playoffs because of it. I still think if Russell Wilson had been happy for the er, happy, healthy for the happy aside, if <laughs> Russell Wilson had he, been healthy, he would have been happier season, if he were healthy. If he had been healthy for this entire season, I think they would be in the playoff hunt. But you, you can't tell me that this team is uh, competing for a Super Bowl roster or competing for a Super Bowl team at this point. And what you have to come back to is John Schneider on the roster construction and Pete Carroll on also the roster construction, but the, the game planning and how to attack a, a personnel group and development of a football team. It is Russell Wilson and then kind of just a bunch of everything else. And it would, I understand that the grass is always greener. I understand that Pete Carroll is a phenomenal leader of men, but ultimately what his job is, is he could go out and find a group of a hundred people to make sure that they get vaccinated and boosted. And that is a very important thing for him to be doing. Winning football games is still his job though. That is, you know, the other stuff is amazing, and we appreciate that Pete Carroll can do it so, so well. We will love Pete Carroll forever, but it's done. 
the the era is over there is a disgust that exists throughout this team you can feel it you can feel that nobody is happy with what's going on in this roster dk metcalf isn't happy russell wilson isn't happy nobody is happy on this team the defense is getting by but they're also being put in these awful situations they played a pretty damn good game against the rams today and what did they get out of it 10 points from their fucking offense 139 yards being on the field more than 60 percent of the game basically every single game this season the defense also is not being put in a good position nobody is being aside from field position but they're having to be on the field a ton Nobody is being put in a good position on the Seahawks team. Nobody is exceeding their level of innate ability or whatever. Nobody is doing better than they could be doing right now. Russell Wilson is a phenomenal quarterback and would be a phenomenal quarterback anywhere. DK Metcalf is a phenomenal receiver and would be a phenomenal receiver anyway. We're talking about like the Seahawks lost DJ Reed and Tyler Lockett in this game. And I wanted to come on here and scapegoat that the Rams don't have fucking Robert Woods or whatever. Like it's not the, again, like a DJ Reed, you know what I mean? Like I understand he's a starting cornerback, but if you're saying that you cannot win this game because of one receiver and one cornerback, that's not a good roster construction ultimately. And what they have done is it really is criminal with Russell Wilson's prime. And if we go into this criminal, next gen- criminal we are wasting <laughs> Russell Wilson's prime. And what, look- you want to take, take charges against Pete and John is metaphorically criminal. Thank you for understanding this. I, I I'll explain figures of speech to you later. The, I know you don't have an English degree. It's okay. The <laughs> finding a quarterback like Russell Wilson, as we go into this off season, I think it is pretty evident that there's going to be change at one of these three different places at GM, at coach, at quarterback. I, I personally, can we, can I read the email at some point? Uh, sure, sure. Get to the email in a second. Just let me finish this thought. Okay. The, finding a quarterback of Russell Wilson's stature is the hardest thing to do in all of sports. And the, it, to trade Russell Wilson this offseason, I was trying to think through this. It would be unprecedented. I honestly could not think of a quarterback at this place in their career being traded or released or whatever without some sort of circumstance. I mean, what, Tom Brady being 41 years old, Peyton Manning coming off of neck surgery? Is that what you're going to say? You're no, going to go gonna, for those? No, I was going to say Aaron Rodgers this offseason. Well, we'll see. <laughs> Even then, Aaron Rodgers is significantly older. Well, it's older than Russell Wilson. Yeah, like, I mean, significantly older. He's and older. He probably is not going to be traded. The Packers watch Jordan Love play a game. I don't think that they're going to do anything. They're going to do everything they could possibly do to make sure that Aaron Rodgers is a Packer next year because trading a player at that stature would be unprecedented. Is, you let Mike McCarthy. You let Mike McCarthy go and you bring in Matt LaFleur. You do what you need to do to keep that quarterback there as long as possible and maintain that prime for as long as you humanly can because there's not another Russell Wilson sitting out there. But there are a ton of Pete Carrolls and there are a ton of John Schneiders. There are some who are better. There are some who are worse. And there's no other Russell Wilson waiting for the Seahawks. So we've had this email in the rundown since Zach Jabal Third Pelton Brothers, Zach Jabal, sent it to us on November 30th, a little over three weeks ago. So I was surprised at how confident you both seem that nothing will change with the Seahawks this offseason, which clearly has changed. I honestly think it's more likely that none of Wilson, Schneider, and Carroll were with the team next year than that all three return. More to, the, that point, more to the point, it's unclear why we as fans should want that. 
the story of the last decade of the Seahawks is more and more looking like three absolutely legendary drafts from 2010 through 2012 in a long, slow decline phase, criminal apparently, once those players started to cost real money. Russell Wilson has been great and might well continue to be great, but what over the past few years indicates that the team can either put him in the position to succeed or consistently acquire enough talent to surround him. That's to say nothing of the fact that while there are some glaring examples of order QBs playing well, comparing Wilson to Rodgers and Brady is frankly putting him in a group that he doesn't deserve to be in. No, I absolutely not. Maybe not Brady, but like how many Super Bowls has Rodgers won? One? Well, I don't think Super Bowls are necessarily our only man or measure or our best measure this? of quarterback play. Rodgers and Brady might not be in the same category, but Rodgers and Wilson are. I don't agree with that. If Wilson is committed to staying here and they can bring in a new head coach and some modern, more modern thinking, maybe that makes sense. But continuing to do the same thing when the team hasn't really been a title contender in six years seems foolish to me. Yes, the odds that the Seahawks find a quarterback as good as Wilson again in any time sooner slim, but the franchise is currently in win now mode and yet can't, you know, win. That's a recipe for a truly bad stretch of years soon. Trading Wilson would hurt and frankly, without a new brain trust, I don't really have faith in them doing anything with a number of high draft picks, but I think we're long past the point where hoping for in 2022 is a viable strategy. So I think number one, I do think if the Seahawks brought everything back the same, they would be a playoff team. They would most likely be a playoff team in 2022. Oh, you or, could see the fucking football outsider story, right? I, I, like I could I picture now Bill, is Bill, Bill Barnwell. Bill yeah. Barnwell predicts the Seahawks to win the NFC. Like you, that is uh, NFC West, not the NFC. Not, not always the way that it plays out, but you could see the story, right? The Dallas Cowboys, the 49ers bouncing back this year, whether it actually happens or not. Preseason, we would go into that season if they ran it back, feeling pretty confident about the Seahawks. And they've never had a fourth place schedule. But number two, like we were at the point of ready for a coaching change last offseason. So obviously nothing aside from Pete Carroll's continued leadership on vaccines has happened over the last 12 months that has caused us to be more in favor of Pete Carroll being the Seahawks coach. I mean, personally, I do feel like there is a world in which I would be really excited about the Seahawks continuing with Pete Carroll as coach, but it's dependent on him giving up his decision-making on fourth downs and in time management it's and never giving happen. up control of the defense and hiring a defensive coordinator who is in, with all, you know, nothing against Ken Norton, but going completely outside of the Pete Carroll tree to hire a defensive coordinator who's going to run that independently of him. It's that is not going to happen. It doesn't matter. That's like, fine. You can, you but that's, that's that. the kind of thing that you, you should Even go if to he him. Did that. We had this ownership. fucking conversation about Shane Waldron, but I can tell you there's no, nothing about that Seahawks offense resembles the Rams offense necessarily, except Actually, for I that it was kind of bad. Looked pretty similar a lot of the night on, on, on Tuesday. Actually, I feel, feel like there was a lot of broad similarity. Yeah. I it's mean, just that the Rams offense has also gotten bad. <laughs> Stafford played so bad. <laughs> I mean, yes, Pete Carroll, obviously, in addition to the defense, also has too much influence on the offense right now. I mean, realistically, do I think he's going to agree to those parameters? No, but that's the kind of stipulation you go to him with and be like, it's either that or you're getting fired. <laughs> or you agree to this or you resign and give us the rest of the money that's left on your contract. Although the, the USC job is no longer dangling out there for Pete Carroll like a carrot. <sighs> It just, it happens. There comes a time when it's over. I mean, Mike Holmgren saw this. It didn't take 
four and 12 necessarily, but like this roster is better than that roster was. And they're not that far off from potentially a four and 12 season. Like they'll probably get to seven and 10, but ultimately, you know, the situation's not that different. And I, I don't agree with, I agree that there should be change, but I don't agree with that maintaining with Russell Wilson cannot be turned around. I mean, we've seen it happen a ton. They're making a fucking movie out of Sean Payton right now. Right. Like, wait, are they? Is that the sequel to American underdog? (laughs) That's the Kevin James movie or whatever. I don't know anything about that. I'm pretty sure your company is making it. I think you're actually an EP on it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) It was part of your contract. I don't (laughs) didn't see that at all. Kind of weird. Read that section. I guess you had a really good agent slash manager. Um, The, teams that have done that. I mean, Aaron Rodgers has had bad seasons. Aaron Rodgers has had worse seasons than Russell Wilson this year, but you just maintain when you have a quarterback like that. You it's all about maintaining. We've talked about this a ton. We've talked about the, I mean, the saints being the primary example, the Steelers having kind of mediocre years and then bouncing back. I mean, the Packers having mediocre years and bouncing back. Like once you have a quarterback at that level, the, you just maintain for as long as you can and hope that you can come up with another draft because it's not impossible. I'd hope that you haven't traded that draft pick for Jamal Adams when you do pick in the top 10. That's the, I mean, but the saints have been in, they were in a horrible place until they weren't. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the one difference is lucky on one, one draft or whatever, but they still had the right head coach in place and the, the area where they had the coach and the quarterback was where they were good and it was the other side of the ball where they were bad. And that's an easier fix than when the side of the ball where your coach specializes in is a problem. That's bad. I mean, that's why we can come back to Pete Carroll should be fired. Like I don't, I'm not at no point am I defending Pete Carroll here. I think the thing that we learned from the season was that without Russell Wilson, this is a bad team without Russell Wilson or a hurt See, Russell Wilson. No, no, I do I do disagree with that particular point because of course they're a bad team. If they if they were paying the 35 million they're paying to Russell Wilson to a bunch of defensive players, yeah, they'd be a lot better team I without don't know Russell if I Wilson. I really buy that though. It's not that, that easy. You don't think I actually, that <clears throat> spending I, I, correlates to success at all? I mean, maybe, but like it's you also have to be able to acquire those players. I'm not sure that I buy it that they would be able to just go out and sign defensive players. I mean, look what the Patriots good. were able to do with all their cap space this offseason once they got Brady's cap hit off their books. I think the Patriots have been extraordinarily lucky. I'm not saying they haven't been. I'm not saying, again, that's the model I'm looking to go to. I'm just saying you can't say, well, the Seahawks weren't good with Russell Wilson injured and say, therefore, Russell Wilson is the only, like, they're this bad without Russell Wilson because. Russell Wilson, any player making 35 million and you take that, or if you force a team to play with a salary cap, that's 35 million than everybody else. They're going to be bad. There, is what there I'm are saying. plenty of teams who have gone out and acquired, I mean, the Browns or whatever, like they have a number one pick quarterback. They have a lot of very expensive defensive players and they're fucking six and eight or whatever, seven and seven. Like I just, I, I don't buy that. You can just flip. Russell Wilson, and all of a sudden that salary becomes useful salary. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that they should Every trade team, Russell Wilson. I'm just saying that's not a fair assessment of what are the Seahawks like in a world where Russell Wilson doesn't ever play quarterback for them. I mean, obviously, Pete Carroll and John Cheddar are long fired since then. Yes, and and that's the other thing is that without Russell Wilson, they're gone. There's no doubt about it. They know it. Everybody knows it. I mean, Pete Carroll admitted as much. I mean. 
and I think the other thing that's changed since Zach wrote that email a few weeks ago and we last sort of talked big picture about the Seahawks future after the Cardinals loss is it has become increasingly clear that no matter what, what we want as fans is irrelevant at the end of the day. What matters is what Jody Allen and Burt Colby want. And, you know, the reporting about that suggests that the, they are not satisfied that this is just a down year and that there is likely to be some degree of change. And obviously, Russell Wilson, as he did last offseason, can push the issue by saying it's it's either a coaching change or trade me. Yeah, that I totally agree. I think what we've learned is that both with the Blazers and the Seahawks is that Jody Allen is comfortable with the idea of shaking it up a little bit. I mean, the Allen family in general, right? Like they're they're we're, Paul Allen was not scared of mixing it up. Paul Allen was not scared of firing Jim Moore after one year. Paul Allen was not scared of. I'm sure, I'm pretty confident that Mike Holmgren was uh, uh, helped out the door. You know, it wasn't a cruel thing, but like, I think people recognize that the tenure was over with the Blazers. There were constant changes among GMs and coaches for a period of time. If it works, then don't mess with it. I think they're good at that. They're good at not messing with something that's working, but if it's not working as the Seahawks are not working as the Blazers were not working, then it's time to start messing with some things. I think the other thing, and this applies to both the Seahawks and the Blazers is a lot of people are like, man, wish we had more engaged owner. It's like, do you, are you aware of the history of engaged owners? It's almost always a terrible thing when your owner is too engaged. The better thing is to have your owner put the right people in place and let them do their job, which is generally for the past decade during the combined Russell Wilson, Damian Lillard eras, what the Seahawks and Blazers have done. I, I'm not super sure, sure what engaged owner even means, aside from it's probably sexism. Like the the notion of it's Jerry Jones. Like I don't. I think there's the, definitely an aspect of sexism to it without question there's a there's a gender bias to is it is jody but allen not at these games she's at the blazers games because the, the they last don't couple really, they don't show the first jody allen at games you know that's another piece is like this could be a, a creation of the broadcast as well like the broadcast choose who to highlight who's there they make stories stories and well, she's not she's not a famous person but she's the owner of the team is arthur blank a famous person yeah, he runs a, one of the largest companies in the world. What does he run? FedEx? <laughs> Arthur Blank was, was uh, uh, Home Depot, right? Was he? Okay. Yeah. Is it FedEx Field? Uh, FedEx is Arthur Smith. Their coach is the son of the founder of FedEx. He does not, to my knowledge, know, own any sports teams. What, what did Jeffrey Lurie own? <laughs> I, I don't know how all of the NFL owners. I'm just saying, I, I think that there are, there are a lot more famous NFL owners. Paul, but Jeffrey Lurie like, also like gives press conferences. Like he's famous for owning the team. And clearly there is an element where, and this is, this was true of Paul Allen as well. Jody Allen is not out there talking to the media. She yelled something at Jason quick a few weeks ago at the bowels of the Moda center. That I think was her first on the record comment as, as owner. What did she yell at him? I forget exactly, but it was the day before the, the Olshay firing came down. That's really funny. Okay, so the other piece, l- looking back at she, the game. She, she was answering a question by Jason Quick. She wasn't like angry. Oh, it's like, damn. Her. Sorry, I, to make that clear. I was going to say, if that's why you're firing Neil Olshay, that would be really <laughs> nice to Jason Quick. And then uh, the other piece about the game, though, just fucking kill me, right? Like, I, I don't even understand what was going on on the field, especially the second penalty, like that pass interference. I, 
it was one of those plays similar to the play that we saw the Rams go to the Super Bowl on where you're just like, I don't, how did this not happen? Like, it's, yeah. it's almost like you can't even be mad because it's just like somebody fucked up so badly that they're like, now we go to Dean Blandino. And he's like, well, when Aaron Donald ripped off Russell Wilson's limbs, I personally thought that was a personal foul, pretty clear personal foul there. But, you know, it, it is a judgment decision and you can't make any perspective about that from New York. And it's like, how can we not fix this? It's not that hard that New York has come down and started fixing things that every single fucking person on the broadcast can see. And it's happening so quickly, right? That, and it's probably for the betterment of the game that they're not making it go to replay review, just fixing shit, right? For sure. Yeah. I Fix mean... this. It's not that fucking hard. Like referees can have, can make judgment decisions. Ultimately a spot is a judgment decision. The idea of a penalty not being a judgment decision, but a spot being a judgment decision, a catch is a judgment decision. How are you parsing? You've got this backwards, actually. What? The, the judgment decisions are what they're not allowed to overturn. That's what I'm saying, is that all of these things are judgment decisions. A yes. catch is something that they can overturn. A spot is something that they can overturn. A person made the judgment to call that a catch or not a catch and to spot the ball where they spotted it. Like saying that one thing is a judgment literally because it involves pulling out a flag and throwing it. But the other thing, if it involves waving your arms, is not a judgment. That makes no fucking sense. Go back to New York if there is an obvious call and fucking fix it. It's not that hard. The broadcast shouldn't have to highlight this that much on the game. Look, the, the defensive holding, I could, I could understand. That might yeah. not have been one if this was the case. The pass interference was a clear call to every single person who watched that play on earth, even Rams and, fans. And as they pointed out, it's the kind of call where if it's mis if it's got, they get it wrong. It's usually they get it wrong by calling the pass interference, not by not calling the pass interference. And these things change games. They change the outcome of games. They change the outcome of who went to the Super Bowl. Why is this not reviewable? They went to pass interference review for a season. The NFL didn't overturn any pass interference reviews and then said, well, we should get rid of this. No pass interference reviews were overturned. It's like, who fucking ran that investigation? The Seahawks investigating or the Blazers investigating Chauncey Billups, right? Did they do a private investigation? Did Washington football team lead the investigation of themselves, right? Was this Mark Meadows investigating what happened on January 6th? Like, I'm sorry, but just because you decided that you weren't going to overturn any calls just to get rid of a rule about overturning calls doesn't mean it wasn't the right rule. I personally am in favor. I think everything should be reviewable. You only have so many reviews. If people are like, well, then there'd be reviews all the time. Limit the amount of reviews. There's only three of them. You can, a coach can use them on whatever the fuck they want. They could review a spot anytime they'd like to. What's the fucking difference if it's a penalty versus a spot or a catch or whatever? Why are these two things so radically different? I, I guess there's some degree of second guessing officials that they think is greater with a penalty than with some of those other. Then with Dean Blandino aspects. coming on and being like, these guys no, are real I, fuck faces over here. Like, I, I, I'm sorry, I, but I mean, my favorite part was when Dean Blandino was like, yeah, they, they made it reviewable for one year. It didn't go well. Yeah. As you pointed out, it didn't go well because they decided it wasn't going to go well. No, it was, it was a fucking sham. It was set up from the very beginning to not go well, but 
these plays change the outcome of this game. I don't care about what you say. Like the Rams still had to drive after that defensive holding. The Seahawks were off the field. We're probably talking about a very different outcome to this game if that defensive holding doesn't get called. Yeah, I don't think so. I think those, the plays that win against the Seahawks eventually go against them one way or another. But like why, why is this happening this it's year? Not, it's not like it's a game where the Seahawks like dramatically outplayed the Rams and still somehow managed to lose. It's a game where they punted all the fucking time and no. had like two good drives. We don't do that. We don't play well anymore. There's no, yeah. there's no playing well for the Seahawks. It's Rashad Penny breaks off a long touchdown run or you're fucking punting the ball. That's it. That's what the Seahawks offense is now. And, and I wouldn't mind when they fire everybody else if Shane Waldron was on that same boat. But like the, the reality is you, you would never see those calls going against Tom Brady. Never see those calls going against Aaron Rodgers. Like, and look, maybe that's why Russell Wilson isn't in the class of those, of those players because he doesn't get those fucking bullshit calls. But like at some point you would think that if Russell Wilson is throwing an obvious pass interference, maybe he'd get that call. One would there, think. There was, there, I, there was some shenanigans going on in that game. Like just the, the fact that they, they decided to take out the flag and throw it on the Bless Austin defensive holding. It's like, Somebody had to make a decision. This is a judgment call right here. Here's a fucking judgment call. Made the decision to take out the flag and throw it. They saw enough there that that happened. And I'm just, I'm con confused about how that could be the case. How on one end, that's a defensive holding. And on the other end, it's not a pass interference. Like how see both how, of those things can be true at the same time. I can see how, well, first off, it might've been different referees. I, I'm not sure the mechanics of which referees are making which calls. I mean, I can see how from, whatever angle you had, it might've looked like a hold on Cooper cup on that play, but it, it wasn't, as you say. And yes, again, the pass interference penalty remains completely inexplicable, but okay. the Rams you, you also want to talk have... about the win probability on these plays. I'm sure you're, I mean, I had it pulled off. Uh, the, the, the holding cost the Seahawks six points of win probability. The, uh, the it's a little tougher to say exactly because we don't know what it would have been if they had converted that fourth down and had gotten the penalty yardage, but the highest their win probability ever got on that entire final drive was 15%. It well, is the usual it would have been the highest after the call. Uh, probably. Like, probably. As usual, I mean, you have the situation where even if the Seahawks score a tying touchdown there, number one, the Rams are probably going to get the ball back with time to try to score before the end of regulation. Number two, you have to win in overtime, and it's a seven-point underdog, the Seahawks. I mean, there's similar to the Ravens, I think, on Sunday. So I think you're like a 35% bet in overtime at that point. They probably so, would have called their worst fucking play of all time on the two-point conversion. Shouts to Washington. <laughs> Shouts to the Washington football team game. God. So it's not, again, I don't think those plays cost the Seahawks the game, but yes, they were they were crucial penalties, and that is a large amount of win probabilities still to swing on penalties that were that badly missed. I mean, the other thing is Russell Wilson just didn't play very well today. Did he, he didn't, not play very well? I don't think he did. I don't think this well, was he uh, was without a. Well, that's coming back to the Tyler oh, Lockett yeah. point, oh, like. No. I'm sorry, but in the end, this game was delayed for two days so that the Rams could get more players back. And ultimately, 
as far as players missed due to uh, being on the COVID list, the Seahawks were without more impactful players in this game than the Rams were. And I do not think that's the way that this should have been structured. I mean, I do think that's the way that it should have been structured is to make things as good for the Rams and it's representative a game as it possibly could have been. But, but the other aspect of it why is... Why not play it on Wednesday? If When Tyler Lockett goes on the fucking reserve COVID list, why not push it back a day? If it's one day later, is Tyler Lockett playing this game? Probably. Why not play it on Thursday? I think like, that's it pretty, just, what's pretty start- speculative to assume that it one day would have made the difference. Number one, there's the impact on the following week. Uh, number two, the the Seahawks didn't have the same degree of uncontained outbreak that the Rams clearly had that forced them to disperse and not, but there's also the, just the confirmation bias of you're thinking about all the situations where Tyler Lockett and DJ Reed were missed in the game. You're not thinking of the fact that Carlos Dunlap had three sacks in this game in part because of the fact that the Rams top two right tackles were both injured or were both on COVID, the COVID list. What a game by Carlos Dunlap. He also went right through Andrew Whitworth for one of those there we sacks. Go. So that, that one definitely holds up either way. You're not thinking of, Hey, what are the situations where Tyler Higby would have been open instead of the tight end who Bryson Hopkins, who caught it the first pass of his career was a key first down, I think for the Rams, but it was also the first catch of his career. They just not Tyler threw the Higby. ball to fucking scout one wrong or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> who is that dude? Uh, he's a rookie. I, I'm familiar oh, with that. Good God. Uh, I, I think mean, there's even, more than a little confirmation bias at, on, in play there. But the offense without Tyler Lockett is a lot worse. I mean, low-key, the, the most important player on Seattle's offense is Russell Wilson, and the second most important player on Seattle's offense is Tyler Lockett. And I think it's not even necessarily that close. I mean, particularly in a game against the Rams, where Jalen Ramsey has the ability to cover DK Metcalf one-on-one, Tyler Lockett is very important. On the other hand... It's not like the Seahawks offense dominated the LA Rams before. Like the Seahawks offense has been shitty against the Rams a lot of times. Cause you know who was healthy and was able to play and was wrecking worlds as usual. It was Aaron Donald. And there were so many plays where Russ was holding it though, where you're just like, Russ is he's just waiting for somebody to do a Tyler Lockett. He's like holding the ball and he's like, where the fuck is Tyler Lockett? I mean, right obviously now? the deep pass to Eskridge that ended up into double coverage was the one that most clearly, like, that's a situation where him and Lockett connect so often. I, he just, that they're a perfect combo. And it sucks that that didn't happen. It sucks that the Seahawks had to end their season because of two garbage penalty calls and because Tyler Lockett couldn't play in this game. But they also lost their season, ended their season, because they had already lost eight games before this, as you pointed out in your opening intro. I had to complain about this game, too. <laughs> We're it was fucking not gonna complain. Just awful to watch Tuesday night football. One of the worst Tuesday night game in Seahawks history, undoubtedly, without <sighs> question. So now they play out the string. They got these three games left, and they'll play hard and play to win because that's what Pete Carroll teams do. I, I mean, I do wonder. Well, if and also because point- we've traded away our draft pick for somebody who has not been present, and it wasn't it was like him not being there didn't cross my mind at no point was I like, wow, if Jamal was here, that would have been a different situation. Two first round draft picks. Not, not, not the best trade in franchise history. Any, anything else on the Seahawks? We're, we're not going to preview the Seahawks lions game. I'm sorry. Bears. I mean, I Bears. Bears. Yeah. It's bears this week. We just don't care. Percentage chance of victory. I'm probably not even going to go if it snows. It's like, 
<sighs> Should we get to the rest of our the usual rundown? We I've been drinking this entire time, but not mentioned this week. Busting out, of course. The Hello. Rainier Jubilee can. Wow, and the tall boy. Oh yeah, in the 16 ounce. So check that out in your uh, wherever you purchase beer. Uh, our toast wherever this you week. purchase Rainier. <laughs> First off, uh, if you haven't already, be sure to listen to our year in music pod. Getting rave review. <laughs> it was one person sent us a very nice DM. Wait, really? Yeah. I oh, thought I you saw that. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Our toast this getting way. Rave review. <laughs> uh, first off, we mentioned, I mentioned this off the top, but to all oh, rain. Announcing a full-time move to Lumen Field for the 2022 season is presaged by their successful debut at Lumen Field as part of a doubleheader with the Sounders last August. In a release announcing the move, the rain indicated their study of building a 10,000-seat soccer-specific stadium in Tacoma concluded that project was not currently viable in terms of cost and timeline leading to their move. And then I think also a product of the NWSL's growth in the past year that it can be realistic to play at a stadium the size of Lumen Field. So I'm excited. I know it's going to be a lot easier for me to go to rain games next season than it has been when they're in Tacoma. All right, next up to uh, Sue Bird, who is named USA Basketball Athlete of the Year after helping lead the women's national team to her fifth gold medal in the Tokyo Olympics, tied with teammate Diana Taurasi for the most of any basketball Olympian. And then this week to, uh, lastly this week, to UW Element, Women's, UW Element Women's Ultimate, that's a tongue twister, which reached the finals of the USA Ultimate College Championship before losing 15-6 to number two seed North Carolina. The men's team, the Sun Dodgers, fell to Michigan in the quarterfinals as the number three seed. Hat tip to the listener, Eric Manley, on that note, with the heads up that those, those games were happening. I'm just right. reading the, the rave review. Oh, okay. How, how is it? Oh, that's great. You're welcome, Gabriel Corey. Thank you for listening. Yeah. And yeah, for everybody cool. else, go straight to hell. <laughs> uh, Noah Cohen tweeted, tweeted uh, that he feels cool listening to it. So he had that. And Jimmer clearly listened. He, he brought up the existential darkness of the <laughs> Year in Music podcast, which I think reflected this, the Kraken curse. Should we talk I'm about- also, okay, for, like, I can't believe we've made it this long without even talking about it, because really, this episode's going to have a lot of it. And uh, is, is it? I mean, the Seahawks season ended because of two blown calls. Are you kidding me? I'm like, I'm I'm like, why are all of these calls going against the Seahawks this year when there's (laughs) such an obvious answer just sitting out there? Literally the second, basically like early season, I don't, they just fucking straight lost to the Vikings or whatever. Like it was hours, mere hours before the Kraken debuted as a franchise. That was the Vikings game? Yeah, that was the day of the first cracking game. Yeah, so the, they straight loss, no shenanigans, nothing weird happened the in Titans, that one. The Titans, there was a lot of shenanigans, but the cracking. But it wasn't, wasn't, it wasn't refereeing. It was just the team played badly. Now they are legitimately, quantifiably. Jason, Jason Myers missing the extra point that created overtime. And in the Tennessee game? Yeah. Chekhov's extra point. It's like, I, I just, it's obvious that Seattle has traded success of every other sports franchise for not a successful hockey franchise, 
for just a hockey franchise. And for some of you filthy animals, that's enough. <laughs> you watch Die Hard lately? It's from Home Alone. Thank you. Oh, right. Yes, Home Alone. Uh, okay, we're going to talk about food this week. Starting with, you wanted to talk about treat cookies? Well, let's talk about chicken first. Okay. So I feel like you got you to have the dinner before you can have dessert, you know? Uh, that's a good point. So this is, I don't know if this is an official entry belatedly into our search for Seattle's best fried chicken. I... So I, I had been intending to go to the Jerk Shack for a while to just, uh, <laughs> they've been running out of view. <laughs> the classic, by the way, happy early Festivus to the listener as well. I just watched that Festivus episode before we recorded this pod. Oh, to get yourself in the mood. Absolutely. I got a lot of problems with you people and by you people, I mean you. Kevin and Tristan and Elaine. Uh, I'd been intending to go there, but I didn't realize that fried chicken was their specialty and that we should have been considering them as part of our search for Seattle's best fried chicken. And notably, so I went there with... Uh, Do you think it's their specialty? I think it might be their specialty. Okay. Jerk style fried chicken. Uh, I went there with Talking Taco Time co-host Randy before the Kraken game a couple weeks ago, as upset as I'm sure that makes you. And obviously I had no choice but to order the fried chicken, which comes is it's a half fried chicken. And instead of them like breaking up the half fried chicken, now nah, you're getting the whole half of chicken half right there chicken. on your plate. It's outstanding. It's so much food. And what'd you think of it? It was great. I, I thought that they're, so it's, it's non-flour breading, which is a little unusual but it's still very flavorful, uh, certainly with the spicing on the skin. And then, you know, you don't really get much dark meat that I could tell, but the, the breast meat is so remarkably juicy and flavorful that it's, it stands alone in that regard. If you're going to eat chicken breast, fried chicken breast, Jerk Shack is your number one choice. So I went there like a week after you and uh, kind of randomly, but you, you said I had to get the fried chicken and I thought it was good. Oh, you didn't, you didn't share my opinion. I mean, I love jerk shack. This is nothing personal about jerk shack. I just don't think the fried chicken. I mean, we've just had so many fried chickens at this point where it's like the standards are pretty extraordinarily high. And that's like saying it's like, like there's no dark meat, there's no chicken thigh. And you're just like, yeah, I mean, you know, John Schneider and Pete Carroll are coming back, but there's no Russell Wilson. But you know, like they said that they're going to try really hard next year. They gave up, Pete gave up defensive duties and that's really juicy. Like if you, without the chicken thigh, you don't really have anything. Like what, what did other people in your party get? Cause you, you went with a group. All sorts of different, nobody else got the fried chicken. Mm-hmm. I think the fried chicken any- is, were there any of the standouts? Uh, I think everything is good there at the Jerk Shack. Again, this is not me saying that I don't think it's good, but like, I just, I kind of really can't eat chicken breast anymore. <laughs> like wow. that's what the search did is eating. If I know that knowing that the chicken thigh exists <laughs> and just how good chicken thighs are, it's kind of just like, why the fuck would I ever eat a chicken breast ever again? You don't have to. This, Randy had the sandwich, the chicken sandwich, I think, and it looked very good. So, that, or or getting it in a place, 
it needs something else. Chicken breast, fried chicken breast. It needs more to it because it's just a lot of white meat chicken. And like the, were I, you, were you I dipping it? Yeah, I was dipping it. Okay. It was fine. Mm. I thought the, the flavor on the outside was good, but like there's just not a lot you can do with that much white meat chicken. Wow. We are going to have to agree to disagree on this one. Okay. Tree cookies. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. Treat cookies. So, uh, went to go, uh, have some car work done and Birian shouts to community auto and Birian. And, uh, of course had to stop by treat cookies. It'd been a little while. It'd been like, I think a couple of months, I think it might've been since October. Since You I'd occasionally had turned down. Like I would go to treat and we were going to hang out and I'd be like, Hey, would you like a cookie? And you'd be like, nah, I'm good. I think I might've, I I might've been soured for a second. I don't know, but, and maybe I just had the, like, you know, the, the standards a little bit too much, but what I hadn't had yet was the holiday standards. Hello. And I, it like, so ended up getting basically every single one of their like holiday specific cookies. Uh, Their, what do they call them? December specials. And pretty much every single one of the December specials was the best cookie I've ever had in order. It was like the top five best cookies I've ever had in my entire life. I swear to God. It's just like every bite. I'm just like, damn, how the fuck did they do this? How is it so crunchy on the outside and so soft on the inside? It's a lot, a shit ton of butter. Whatever. Fucking sign me up. I don't care. I'm in favor. If you're uh, going to eat butter, if you're going to eat that much butter, it better taste good. So I've had the first one I went with when I went earlier in the month was the eggnog creme brulee. Oh, it's pronounced creme brulee. But, uh, you That's know, what I said. you were like the eggnog creme brulee. <laughs> okay. Like not, not of us took three years of French. It's okay. As <laughs> <laughs> wow, majoring in English, all sorts of languages. Anyway, the eggnog creme brulee, it was like, I, that, so that to me, I, I think that was number two. I, wa- I wanted to rank the holiday specials. Oh, okay. So the other ones I've had are the peanut butter brittle blossom cookie, which I think was that, my number one. Wow. That actually was the one for me that I thought maybe was at the, still phenomenal, but I think was at the bottom. And then the pandan leaf white chocolate cranberry cookie. Are you kidding me with this cookie? Where is this coming from? What is pandan leaf? Never heard of it before. <laughs> Phenomenal. Honestly, like I thought the interesting thing about that was the cranberries really stood out, but it was kind of a traditional cookie in a lot of ways. Yeah. I, I was kind of surprised because it's green. You expect there to be, and I heard it being described as an almost like matcha like flavor, which I didn't get a ton of, but still phenomenal. It was the one mom got. So I split half of that when, when she dropped off my cookies. That she, what they don't she have on the website right now is there's a molasses cookie which normally molasses cookies i'm i'm like hard out absolutely not this was confidently the number one cookie that they had from the december specials wow. i'm sad that it's not on the website anymore because do i plan on on putting in an order for pickup this week i don't think they're doing drop-ins just pickups for this week due to That's staffing correct. issues and you know what just stop listening to this podcast right now if you are any or Put it on your headphones. You could still type on a computer or a phone. But if you are anywhere near Berrien, Washington, what you're going to want to do 
is order up four or 10 cookies from Treat Cookies with a focus on the holiday specials. If you haven't had the non-holiday specials, you might want to try one of those as well. Uh, I think that you're, the Madison being the chocolate chip where just phenomenal. Uh, oh, classic. They don't have the peanut one right now, do they? Oh yeah, okay, the Carly. Yeah, gluten-free peanut butter and Reese's Pieces cookie. Oh, incredible. incredible. Yeah. Uh, just put it in order. You've got a few days here until Christmas. Just put, put it in order there. It is, you will not be disappointed. After that for me was, uh, there was, what do they call this one? The Laura hot chocolate peppermint cookie with chocolate chips and peppermint bits. It's perfect. That's the uh, one I, of the holiday specials, that I, the December specials that I have not had. Oh, so good. And then I think after that for me was there was like a frosted sugar cookie, still excellent. And then the, the peanut butter one that you mentioned, but. I just thoroughly enjoyed every single second of eating those cookies. I'm not surprised. Lastly, on the food topic of food. So I spent a couple of days in Portland. It was my first extended trip to Portland of the season because the Blazers had back-to-back games on Tuesday night, hosting the Suns, Wednesday night, hosting the Grizzlies. Both Blazers losses. But uh, the real winner was me getting to eat there a couple of places I hadn't been yet this season. Uh, num- well, first off in the arena, I tried, they have uh, Bay's Chicken, which is a local spot that has been pretty trendy on social media. The famous cousin Katie had highlighted it for us way back, I think in the spring, maybe before they were in the Moda Center and uh, an immense amount of food. The chicken sandwich that I got, it was like almost too much food, but quite good. And the waffle fries are excellent. So if you're in the arena or elsewhere, uh, or at one of the two locations, I actually ate next to the location because it's uh, then the next day because it's it's located next right next to a Fury Ramen, which is by the Voodoo Donuts downtown. So I hit those two spots the next day. Voodoo always quality. Uh, a Fury Ramen. It was the first time I had eaten that since I think 2019. It's my number one ramen in the world. Nothing has changed. It's so good. That was that was a real highlight to be able to get back there since, you know, ramen is not a good takeout food. I hadn't done that in the times I had been going just down to the Moda Center instead of staying over. And then my last meal there on uh, Thursday morning before taking the train back up from Portland was uh, to try the new screen door in the Pearl District. Uh, same amazing fried chicken, still better than any fried chicken in Seattle, with all due respect to the Damn. best Seattle fried chicken. Dang. Uh, had the, it was the first time I've had the chicken waffle since, again, maybe 2019, since I had the, the chicken dinner the one time I had gone there earlier this year since the pandemic. And uh, the, the new location is a little more spacious than the one that they have on the east side. And hopefully the fact that there are two of them, you know, it's not quite I went on a Thursday morning. So obviously there was no line at all. I was able to just get a table. But uh, uh you know, hopefully not quite the long wait that you're used to on the east side now that there's multiple locations of a screen door. So very exciting development there. One I've been tracking for a while, excited to uh, actually see it. Let's get to Seattle, return to Seattle sports, starting with the Kraken, who uh, got a 3-1 win last Tuesday at San Jose then on a back-to-back, lost 4-1 Wednesday at Anaheim. Came home to lose 5-3 against Edmonton. Uh, a competitive matchup against the Oilers, but a loss. And that is the last time that we will see the Kraken play until next Monday. Because like much of the NHL and obviously much of professional sports in general, they've been dealing with a number of COVID cases. 
they had three players in protocols that went in prior to that game. I went to a week ago, Saturday joined last Saturday by defenseman, Jamie Alexiak Sunday by defenseman, Carson Susie. Then a sixth player defenseman, Adam Larson tested positive on Monday, leading to the postponement of Tuesday's game after the game that they were scheduled to play on Sunday had previously been postponed due to Toronto's COVID issues as had Thursday's game with the Calgary flames. And then the uh, NHL came in yesterday and said that any remaining games between tomorrow and the resumption of play next Monday will be postponed as they take an extended holiday break here and try to uh, get things under control. Uh, The Kraken will play next scheduled to play next Monday at Vancouver, although the fate of the you know, games across the border, even in a little more jeopardy than the domestic games because of the different quarantines. If players test positive while they're on the other side of the border. Uh, the other news coming out of Saturday's game is that Brandon Tanev left with a lower body injury. GM Ron Francis told reporters he'll be out indefinitely. So bad news with the cult hero of the Kraken thus far. Kraken curse claimed one of their own. <laughs> the Kraken have also cursed themselves too. So I, tough break. I, I don't know if, if it can claim one of their own. They're, they're ultimately very cursed. I mean, they've been, they've wildly uh, uh, disappointed this season versus expectations heading into the year. Not terribly surprising, but yes, they've underperformed what we were hoping. All right. Sounders did not have a player selected last Tuesday by Charlotte FC in the MLS expansion draft. Uh, The full MLS schedule was released last week. Emphasis on fewer midweek games, just four for the Sounders. We'll be at home from May 29th through June 29th for a four-game homestand starting with Charlotte FC's first visit. Portland comes to town on July 9th. The Sounders make their only visit to Portland on August 26th. And then we also learned that the Sounders are drawn against Matagua of Honduras in the CONCACAF Champions League round of 16. Those matchups will take place February 17th and February 24th with the second leg at Lumen Field. So we are less than two months away. Hello. Return to Sounders action. It is a short offseason with the length of the MLS regular season. OL Rain news, they did have two players selected in the NWSL expansion draft. Angel City FC selected midfielder Danny Weatherholt and the San Diego Wave selected defense defender Kristen McNabb. Uh, teams combined to take just seven total players, so two from the Rain kind of shows how deep their roster is. The only U.S. women's national team allocated player taken was Chris, midfielder Christy Mewis, who was taken by San Diego and traded to Cotham FC. So Megan Rapino safely <laughs> in Seattle for another year and in Shocking. Seattle. Now instead of Tacoma. We actually missed this last week. This 2022 storm schedule was announced the previous Thursday. That was announced while I was uh, at the the uh, the Champions Center taking a tour with other media of the center that they've put together. They they converted what was the Kraken Center to pick season tickets into uh, location for storm season tickets to come and select their season tickets in the new arena. So uh, exciting. And the, there's the four, a center for this. What, what, what are you talking in, about? Yeah. It's a, I mean, it's a, you know, it's a building in the Pacific science center right near the arena that is devoted to this. You, you seem shocked by this. It seems very strange. Why can't you just walk people through the arena? I, I assume because it's busy with events at this point. During the day. But obviously they couldn't for the Kraken because it wasn't built yet. So it was able to be repurposed for the Is it storm. like a virtual reality center? 
I mean, you can see kind of what the view would be from your seats. That's one of the things you can see for sure. It, I got to tell you the effect of like, they have a model of the arena and the roof come to, comes off and you can see inside. It's not quite as, as impactful now that I've been to the arena four times. Just have people go stand inside the Vera Project offices and look over. Uh, uh, anyways, they have the uh, four championship tr- trophies on display as well as the Commissioner's Cup trophy, which I can confirm is a definite cup. You could drink there out we of go. that fucker. Finally. <laughs> Finally, some good news on this podcast. I don't know if anyone has, but you definitely could. How would, what, what's the point of it being a cup if nobody's drank out of it? It's a great question, but I didn't see any photos of, of anyone drinking out of it. I don't have a cup around were. me. I was going to show a show that what the cups serve very little other purposes. They could be decorative. So the 2022 storm season will tip off May 6th against Minnesota. It's the earliest opener in franchise history because previously the WNBA had started no earlier than May 36th. That facilitates an expanded 36 game regular season, which was uh, announced in 2020, but had yet to actually be played due to the pandemic. The last two seasons, Storm will face Dallas, Las Vegas, and Minnesota four times each and all the other teams three times. Phoenix makes their loan visit on May 14th in what might be the last season for both Sue Bird and Diana Taurasi, assuming that they do in fact return, which feeling the vibes are good on Sue Bird being back. All right. The vibes are good. It's a home heavy early schedule for the Storm, including an eight game homestand, which is tied for the longest in WNBA history with 11 of their last 16 games on the road. UW women's basketball back in action a 62-59 win Saturday versus Eastern Washington in the Husky Classic opener coming from behind to beat the Eagles, overcoming a three-point deficit at halftime and a two-point deficit through three quarters. Then a more comfortable 58-42 win Monday versus Nevada uh, behind 20 points and nine boards from guard Haley Van Dyke. They held Nevada to 28% shooting in that game. Senior guard Alexis Grigsby suffered a knee injury game in the Eastern game and did not play versus Nevada. So hope She's able to get back soon. The Huskies won't play again until New Year's Eve when they begin Pac-12 play. Why do they schedule games on New Year's Eve? Uh, there's probably not a lot of... There's probably some good TV windows, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> you were going to say it was full of other events, like the, <laughs> like Climate Pledge Arena. They're d- building NFTs <laughs> during the day. You know, men's basketball. They've got a crack office. I'm just telling you right now, I am this close. I've halted on podcast online talking about this. I'm this close to full on pivoting to anti-Kraken. We are are so (laughs) close to it. The Kraken curse is just the first step. The unveiling your mascot via NFT while you play in Climate Pledge Arena is really, that's the next step. It's just like- That's how they're unveiling their mascot. I was unfamiliar with that part of the plan. I'm pretty sure that's what's going on. Hmm. Uh, it was just like a bunch of fucking people were sitting around a room and were just like, what is the dumbest fucking way we can un- unveil our mascot? And they're like, oh yeah, the stupid bullshit that nobody understands and everybody agrees is horseshit. The only people who actually buy it are other people who've bought into it. Uh, and that it's art- artificially driven by NFT guys. Yeah, that's how we want to do it. That's who we want to be uh, most affiliated with here as an organization. But the climate, you know, climate, that's that's big for us too. Just like the... Guess we're not going to do that Pelton Cast NFT. 
I mean, if we were going to do one for the record, it would be like the the uh, the album that that Martin Shkreli purchased, right? Oh, the Wu Tang album. Yeah, the Wu Tang album, where it's one of one, <laughs> a podcast that is strictly for one listener and one. That's listener not only. the NFT, though. Like, that's not what it would have to be. That somebody would say that they can own a publicly consumed podcast. <laughs> I'd be like you can you can own the 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 year in music special which which was met with rave review. <laughs> uh, so you know men's basketball. It's, uh, the Kraken are the 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 walking hockey playing equivalent of a fucking tech bro. Like I'm sorry, that's what this organization is. It's like you took fucking Palo Alto, California, and put it right there in the middle of Seattle, literally the center of Seattle, and named it Climate Pledge Arena. Just taking a have bunch you, of fucking. Have um, you never of, been to South Lake Union? Is oh, it, well, you're not familiar with that area. But they took like literally the arts hub now of the city of Seattle to a certain extent as far as like more organizational purposes go. And they're just like, let's drop some stupid bullshit right in the middle. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's what's happened. Um, anyway. So, Don't you know, stop. men's basketball. It's just like, let's, let's do everything with a strict focus on ultimately capitalism, but talk about all of these other things, these flowery things or whatever. But it is 100% about capitalism. It is about making as much money as possible. Sell wow. an NFT to reveal your stupid mascot. So is continuing to play games during a pandemic. That's true of all sports. You know, men's basketball, a 64-56 win Saturday versus Seattle U and their return to action after a three-week three week break due to COVID-19 cases. They had a full roster for that one, but uh, were predictably rusty in the first half following behind 35-28 before outscoring the Red Hawks 36-21 after halftime for their 14th consecutive win over Seattle U. Emmett Matthews Jr. terrific with 17 points, 11 boards for his first double-double at UW and just second of his college career. Well, Deshaun Davis had a career-high six steals. And then on Tuesday, we mentioned the Utah Valley game could be tricky. Mark Madsen's <laughs> fighting Utah Valley. And the Huskies suffered their fourth home loss of non-conference play in that one and really weren't even particular. It wasn't like a close game that they it's lost. It's a comfortable victory for Utah Valley. I, they kind of just saw that one out. In wow. a uh, 68-52 win. What, you, what the Wolverines? I, 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 68-52 to Utah the, Valley? Yep. Wow. Uh, the Did you just Control-C, control Control-V, control the rant that I did at the beginning, and replace Pete Carroll and John Schneider's name with Mike Hopkins? Oh, boy. The Huskies shot 0 of 11 from three-point range and had two assists in the game. Two assists? Two assists on 19 field goals. Wow. That is impressive. Oh boy. Uh they're like trying to do like the the fucking Bill Belichick thing against the Bills but but not shooting threes. They're just <laughs> like there's going to be one game where where the Huskies win a game without attempting a single three and people will talk about it for months as if they're geniuses. That's like what Mike Hopkins is trying to do here. He's like what if I can collect the worst group of shooters in the country and win a game? Like that would be an impressive feat on its own, right? People wanted to fire Lorenzo Romar. They thought Ugh. that was a good idea. Huskies played without Jamal Bay and Dominic Penn, as well as all three assistant coaches due to COVID protocols in that one, which apparently the assistant coaching staff, very, very important as it turns out. The Huskies' four <laughs> uh -huh. home non-conference losses this season 
as I noted on Twitter, tie 2001 for the most in a season in program history, according to sportsreference.com. Cool. Uh, the Huskies will open conference play next Wednesday at Washington State. What would you put the chances of Mike Hopkins maintaining his position at right now? Is, is it I mean, it depends 50%? How, it depends how endless this bottomless pit of money that you're talking about in the UW Athletic Department is. Because obviously from a performance standpoint, like there, there's just like no, the, there's no justification left at this point, I don't think. Well, it's, I don't know if you're familiar with a bottomless pit, but the thing is there's no bottom. So <laughs> I'm familiar with bottomless uh, wings. Sometimes I, I, I ultimately think there might be a bottom. My God, uh, the Huskies dropped 25 spots in Kemp Bomb with tonight's loss down wow. to 169, which would be the lowest they have ever <sighs> finished a season. Uh, let's see here. They did get down to 172 at one point during Lorenzo Romar's final season. So we have not yet reached the worst team in the Ken Palm era, uh, at least during the era for which we have game guy game results. The 2001 team, of course, that had those four home non-conference losses finished number 181 in Ken Bob Bender's penultimate season as head coach. Wow. It really feels like Loro was the coach by then. <laughs> No, he was not. In fact, as I mentioned on Twitter, cool, you did not, we're not reading the No, 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 I, I saw okay. this. I, I saw this. It just feels like he was the coach. He coached St. Louis to one of those four victories at Heckad over the Huskies okay. in the fall of 2000. You ready My for first it? quarter is a student. Are you ready for it? I'm ready to announce. We've got, we've got our year in review podcast coming up. Bold predictions are coming. <laughs> You're doing a bold prediction right now? Next UW head coach. Mark the Mad Dog Madsen. Bring oh, it on. I thought you Who were says say, no? I thought you were going to say it was Romar. No. He beat the Huskies, came in, beat the Huskies at home. Boom. If you can't beat them, join them. That is what's happening for the Husky Athletic Department. You know it's coming. I mean, the problem is, again, there's a long list of head coaches who could potentially fit that criteria. Now, Rashawn Burno, the Northern Illinois is currently three and seven. Their other wins are home at Eastern over Eastern Illinois and at Chicago state. So probably it's not going to be him. Uh, Wyoming is pretty good. So Jeff Linder is their coach. They're nine and one. Their only loss is Do you at know Arizona. This off the top of your head. Who no, like... I'm reading this off. Of okay. These people. And, uh, Winthrop, their head coach is Mark Prosser. Again, they're six and six. So probably they lost at Elon. That was a tougher game for them than at UW. So, How is, uh, but Utah Valley, where do they rank? Who, who have they played? No, Utah Valley, as we noted, they are now ahead of the Huskies in the rankings at number 137. They're nine and three. They won, they beat BYU at home. That seems uh, like a good win. One of their losses to Wyoming but all of their losses to top 140 teams. So teams, again, that are clearly better this season than UW, including Southern Utah, which I don't even know what conference Southern Utah plays. They're, they're big sky, apparently. The Mad Dogs got them playing, though. That's NBA champion, Mark Madsen, to you. And, Thank you. And, and 100% is the Huskies would rank third currently in the big sky conference if they were in that one. <laughs> it is dark days. Dark days well, of Montlake. For, fortunately... But- the Maybe bottomless not for the football team. Bottomless. Here we go. Because we learned last week, just after we recorded the podcast, that former Indiana quarterback Michael Penix Jr. is transferring to UW. Who needs Jake Hader? When we Hello. Get a lefty quarterback. There we go. 
I don't, I don't know why that's the thing we care about, but okay. <laughs> Sam Yord, we've got two lefties now. They're, they're rare, a rare breed. Uh, correcting what I said last week, Penix will have two years of eligibility remaining ah. after redshirting as a freshman, even though he did see a little bit of action that season. Penix, of course, enjoyed his best season under Kalen DeBoer as Indiana's offensive coordinator in 2019 when he was a redshirt freshman. Penix completed 69% of his passes for 8.7 yards per attempt that season, declined a bit in 2020 when he finished seventh in the Big Ten with a 68 QBR, similar to Dylan Morris's 70 mark that season, uh, completed just 56% of his passes. The, the COVID season? Yes. Yeah. 56% of his passes for 7.5 yards per attempt. That year ended early due to his second ACL tear, and Penix was far less effective in 2021, completing just 54% of his passes for 5.8 yards per attempt and throwing interceptions more than twice as often as in 2020. So besides for the fact that the Huskies are betting on a bounce back and you know a return to how he previously played under Kellen DeBoer, the other concern is injuries. Penix has yet to finish a college season healthy, having suffered an injury to the sternoclavicular joint in 2019 that ended his season after six games in between the two ACL tears. And then last season, it was an injury to the AC joint in his throwing shoulder that sidelined Penix uh, after the first half of the season. So certainly a situation where you're going to want to feel comfortable with your backup quarterback going into the season if Penix does indeed win the starting job. Well, that's why there's another lefty sitting down there. Uh, <clears throat> the interesting thing about it is like Jake Hayner is coming off this monster season, right? Or very, very good season. Uh, at Fresno State. And it's tough because we can't judge him irrelevant of Galen DeBoer. You know, really, he has not had any sort of like significant playing time in a non-Galen DeBoer offense. And Michael Penix has had time in a non-Galen DeBoer offense. So it's almost judging this perspective. And an offense, by the way, that is represented on the UW coaching staff to uh, preview that because they hired the fired Indiana offensive coordinator Nick Sheridan as their tight end coach. So whatever it's a more Penix ties um I, I mean look they've got they've got three four, four of their offensive coaches have called plays at one point in their career including including DeBoer and the actual offensive coordinator I think it's Ryan Grubb uh it really is about how how highly do you rate Kalen DeBoer and I think at this point given the evidence of what we've seen with Michael Penix both with and without Kalen DeBoer you know, we'll see about Jake Hayner with Jeff Tedford next year. He'll probably still be good. But I mean, like, I mean, Jeff Tedford is not like they're going from Kalen DeBoer to some guy off the street. They're going from Kalen DeBoer to the guy who mentored Kalen DeBoer. But I do think you have to say that the perspective is that Kalen DeBoer is very good at coaching quarterbacks and has done a very good job with Michael Penix. I think the difference between somebody like Hayner when I literally last week predicted that the Huskies were going to win the national championship. Uh, it, was, it was two weeks ago. Last okay, week two we weeks were ago. dealing with the, uh, the sad fallout of Jake uh, not transferring here. You ready for it? You're still upset? This is one more for Jake Hayner. Kraken! Oh, we're, we're not done talking Jake Hayner, to be clear. We're going to get to but that. I, I know, I know. But we, I just had to mourn Jake Hayner one more time, and okay. then we will forget about Jake Hayner. No, right? we're not. But we're not going to be doing Jake Hayner updates. This is it. This is the last time we talk oh, Jake Hayner after this oh, week. Okay. We're, we're not. We're so. going into next year. All positivity about Michael Penix, about potentially Dylan Morris, Sam Heward. And I think that is the difference between Jake Hayner and Michael Penix Jr., which is I think Michael Penix Jr. goes in immediately as the favorite as starting quarterback at the University of Washington. 
I don't think it is a guarantee that he's going to be the starting quarterback from day one. He'll have to earn it a little bit. So like there is a chance that I I wouldn't be shocked if Dylan Morris came back. If, if Jake Hayner transferred to UW, I would be pretty shocked if Dylan Morris came back. And granted, the fact is Michael Penix Jr. has two years left of eligibility, but we'll see what that looks like. You know, if he's not starting for one of those seasons, if he ends up not starting next year, he'll have to, again, earn that position. If he doesn't, maybe he just moves on early. Maybe he transitions to coaching, whatever. There's all sorts of different stuff that can happen with Michael Penix Jr. Maybe he stays on as a backup. Who knows? But I do think that there is, there's going to be more competition in that quarterback room. And I could see them going into ne- into next fall with all three of those quarterbacks there. I also could see, I, probably not Sam Heward, but it wouldn't shock me if anybody transferred, you know, ultimately. So like, I, while I'm excited about Michael Penix Jr., knowing some of his injury history, I'm sure Dylan Morris is aware of some of his injury history. I'm sure that Sam Heward is aware of some of his injury history. Like they're looking at this as not hoping that he gets injured, but just understanding that there may be an opportunity. And that's that's what every quarterback is basically looking for is being able to have an opportunity to play because they're only one quarterback plays at a time. So that- <laughs> well, generally, the Huskies tried the old two quarterback platoon. Yeah, <laughs> it didn't go super great. Kyle Shanahan flirted with it for a second as well. Have not seen much from Trey Lance lately. You know, you um, know I, I just finished uh, my Gastineau's book on the 1991 Huskies, Fear No Man, and pointed out that how regularly Don James employed two quarterback systems. That was the that 90s. He, he was kind of a, a, an iconoclast in that regard. <laughs> the Huskies were probably winning those games like 48 to three for the most part. Well, no, even in years where games were more competitive than during the 91 season, even though there was some question about whether they should at some point bring back Mark Brunell to replace Billy Joe Hobart, despite the team being undefeated. It was a nice problem to have. <laughs> yes. But I mean, I mean, in hindsight, Mark Brunell is like such an amazing quarterback. Oh, yeah. I mean, but you have to be excited about you know, Michael Penix Jr., maybe kind of Brunell like, um, not as fast, but also coming off toward ACL. Yeah. He's got that thing that in common in addition to both being lefties. I really just meant that he was left-handed. <laughs> I mean, there is a, a solid tradition of left-handed quarterbacks at the University of Washington when you consider Brunel and Brock. I mean, given what a low percentage of quarterbacks are left-handed, especially in the modern era, having that many left-handed quarterbacks is quite something. And two on the roster at the same time. Yeah. Uh, the... But, you know, I went through and looked at Michael Penix's stats when he transferred, and that one season is obviously extraordinarily encouraging. It's funny because I feel like we keep pointing to this one season where it's like, again, in 2020, he was good. Like, as as I said last week on the pod, it was also a very strange season. I'm not going to judge basically anybody that much for that season. His QBR in 2020 was better than Jake Hayner's last season when you adjust for the quality of competition that they were facing, including the fact that he won a game against Penn State, right? was the the dive to win the game was I believe that was Michael Penix all right and then they lost by like a touchdown to Ohio State but Jake Hayner God bless him you were very excited about the fact that Jake Hayner was beating UCLA like that's not on the level of Penn State and Ohio State and it's not every week no seventh in the Big Ten with a room for improvement is definitely not that bad as far as quarterbacks go yeah so um but I do think we keep you know, like for Kalen DeBoer, there's more than just that one season in Indiana, but that that's the one season for both of them where you're like, they just came together and had this one very good season on offense together as these, this coach and quarterback 
And if we can run it back with some additional skill players and honestly with worse competition in the Pac-12, you know, the defenses are going to be nowhere near as hard as they're going to be in the Big Ten. We know that. Can they can they translate that to being top three in the Pac-12 in QBR? And then you've got something. Uh, Huskies also adding cornerback Jordan Perryman is a transfer from FCS UC Davis. He'll have one year of eligibility as a sixth year senior who has started since his redshirt sophomore season at that level. First team, all big sky pick in 2021 playing time at cornerback position. Definitely <laughs> better than grabs. Husky basketball <laughs> <laughs> with all three 2021 starters likely headed to the NFL. Uh, UW did sign the expected five-player class last Wednesday on the early signing day. Wide receivers Jeremy Bernard and Denzel Boston, tight end Ryan Otten, line, offensive lineman Parker Brailsford, and linebacker Lance Holtzclaw. Uh, at the press conference introducing that class, DeBoer told reporters that he expects to add approximately 15 players this offseason between recruits and transfers, so that would leave about eight spots remaining for, again, players that have decided to wait until the later signing date and additional transfers, because clearly we are not done with those All on right. either side. There's, there's going to be some more Huskies who's transfer, although we already have seen a couple of players uh, announce their transfers. Jordan Perryman just sounds like a cornerback, <laughs> right? Doesn't he just sound like he's going to be a good cornerback? Drafted Jordan Perryman and Madden. Yeah, Jordan Perryman, you're just like, yeah, that's a solid cornerback. He's not, he's not amazing, but he's a solid cornerback. Uh, DeBoer announced his full coaching staff on Saturday with the addition of five coaches from his staff at Fresno State after they played their bowl game, including co-defensive coordinators William Inge and Eric Morell. Wide receiver coach Junior Adams and offensive line coach Scott Huff will remain from Jimmy Lake's staff as the holdovers. The Huskies, as I mentioned earlier, already added Sheridan as their tight end coach. Love to see Junior Adams sticking around uh, after what he, what he did stepping up in that moment of serious turmoil. Uh, for the Husky offense in particular came in and definitely tried some stuff out. I think, you know, moving back to a role that makes maybe a little bit more sense might've got elevated a little bit too quickly there, but like the, you know, maintaining that continuity with the team and also just for junior Adams as a person, like being able to stay with the program, I think is huge. And I'm always happy when people are able to, to stick around through a new staff and, you know, learn from a different group of people and prove themselves to a different group of people. You also see the influence of recruiting on some of those decisions or on those decisions on recruiting that maybe I should say in terms of, you know, three of the five players they sign, the two wide receivers and an offensive lineman at those position groups. And then uh, also uh, certainly important retaining Huff for the, uh, the recruiting of the most coveted unsigned players still in the, uh, the state of Washington, Rainier Beach offensive tackle, Josh Connerly Jr., who will be a, a big player for the Seahawks, the Seahawks, the Huskies to pursue in the later signing day. Josh Connerly Jr.? Josh Connerly Jr., yeah. I have two. Okay. Josh Connerly Jr., Rainier Beach. I'm just Rainier Beach offensive tackle. All right. Let's fucking go. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and continue our theme of a lot of schedules being released for 2022. Very optimistic at this point, frankly. Uh, the Pac-12 oh, schedule. I, we got a long ways to go. 2022 Pac. There could be like so many variants by then. 2022 Pac-12 schedule released. The uh, Huskies will open with Stanford on September 24th before back-to-back road games at UCLA and Arizona State. 
Their bye comes October 29th ahead of hosting Oregon State, followed by a visit to Eugene. Senior day is November 19th versus Colorado with the Apple Cup set for Saturday this year, November 26th in Pullman. The last Apple Cup in Pullman, you'll recall, was 2018 because the Huskies were scheduled to play there in 2020 when that game was unable to be played. So we wrap up here with what, what you're calling, I'm not committing to this, the final Jack Hayner update. Uh, do was, you think, so one question about Josh Connolly Jr. Seeming like, I mean, 247 two, Sports lists him as 50% of the experts pick him going to UW, 50% to Michigan. Uh, who was the, the, the like? Courtney Morgan. Okay. Courtney Morgan. Do you think he was involved with the recruiting process? Kind of seems I, like he would have been. Think he was very involved with the recruiting process. And I do not think that was, I mean, obviously they wanted him because of his experience working with Kalen DeBoer and his success and how highly regarded he is. He was on the list. Uh, the athletic published a list of the top recruiting I don't, I don't, coordinators uh, in college football. And, and Courtney Morgan was on that list. And, uh, but it, it was a nice side bonus that he also happened to be involved in recruiting the number one target for UW left. I mean, it kind of makes, oh man, God, I would love to get a big, big time offensive lineman. It would be very exciting. You saw who was starting for the Rams today, lineman. Coleman Shelton. Coleman Shelton. Yeah. Because he's done done a nice job. He started last Monday too. Thanks, Pete and John. Really love to see Taylor Rapp get the clinching interception of the game. Well, Eastern Washington's Cooper Cup sets the all-time Rams record for receiving, and Greg Gaines comes up with one of the most crucial pressures of the entire game. It's just, it's it's endless. They don't even have uh, Corey Littleton anymore because he was one of the free agents they lost. But, I mean, their ability to get players from the state of Washington and UW in particular, it is truly uncanny. Maybe recognize what's going on around you, Pete and John. Have some fucking sense about it. How many secondary players? It's like Sidney Jones eventually, who I think has played pretty well. Sidney, Sidney Jones, Jones for getting him for whatever they, like a conditional seventh round pick or whatever they traded to the Jaguars has had an outstanding season. But maybe just for a second, recognize something that's going on in your very own city when you've had the opportunity to draft any or all of these players. Like it was great gains. Like a, I think it was a fifth round pick. Probably. Fifth round, like, that is a freaking, I mean, not that the Seahawks need a different nose tackle. Like they're doing good with their big men right now, but like, come on. Could they not also use Greg Gaines? Right. Uh, fourth round. Poor Greg Gaines. It's disgusting. It is sickening to see. Let's see which players the Seahawks drafted immediately. I mean, I know this is really not fair with uh, hindsight. Uh, in that case, they drafted Ugo Amadi two spots ahead of him. Phil Haynes, 10 picks ahead of him. Yeah, well. So at least Ugo has remained on the team. Like most of the players, yeah, most of the players that they've drafted around any significant Husky player (laughs) didn't even make the team in their rookie season. Oh no. They're like, we had to go out and get Gary Jennings. You know, just when when there's a talent like Gary Jennings out there, you just, you have to target them on your board. Nobody's going to hit a hundred percent. Just would would love to see some more Huskies. It would be great. Nobody's going to hit a hundred percent. seems like the Rams are hitting pretty nice percent on Husky players. They are. They're hitting a very strong percent on Husky players. Have we uh, ever had like, I I feel like they've never had like a Taylor Rapp style safety. I know that's not really like a Pete thing, but. I mean, I feel like Taylor Rapp could fit in this system. I don't think that's the issue. The issue is that they're bad and they should know it. <laughs> Anyways, our final 
apparently. JK they did draft update. Will Disley. That <laughs> yeah, that one, one but it worked out for you. Did it? I mean, just for where he was drafted. No, it did. It did. Yeah. I mean, the the thrill has uh, been through multiple injuries. Yeah. I don't think they could have predicted that was going to happen. But for a fourth round pick to still be on the roster four years later and contributing, that's a win. All right. All right. We'll get checking that up. They just they won't even know to draft fucking K. Dotton. I mean, I don't, I don't know if tight end is a significant need at this point. Gerald Everett <laughs> did play quite well tonight. That was a, that was a positive. Anyways, Jake Hayner, 24 31 for 286 yards and a touchdown and a 31 24 win for Fresno State over UTEP in the New Mexico Bowl as the Bulldogs finished the season 10 and 3. Wow. So there you go. I wanted to look up like how many 10 win seasons, but Fresno State has a lot of 10 win seasons. Like Jeff Tedford had multiple 10 win seasons. They've kind of consistently coach. been good, right? They're they're a very good Mountain West program and have been for a long period of time. Um, have you been watching any bowl games at all? No. Have you seen any second of any bowl games? I don't think so. I had some interest <laughs> in watching the uh, Oregon State Utah the State Bowl? matchup last week was that the the LA Bowl? Uh-huh. Uh huh. But that was also at the same time as the Patriots and the Colts. So I was I was more interested in streaming that while I was watching NBA games. Jeff Tedford was only there for three years. So it's kind of well, so yeah. Before he's back now, it, it kind of seems they haven't had that many ten win seasons. They had they had two under Tedford and then one under Tim DeReeder. Yeah, the Tim DeReeder, I, I swear that he was an assistant coach under Sark at some point or under Willingham. But I think the, you're thinking of Eric Kiesau. Eric Kiesau, who, yes, did finish a season, was, in fact, the offensive coordinator under Sark. DeReeder was at Oregon, so that's why I'm thinking of him. Pat Hill was, like, a very solid coach, but could ne- never really, like, got past that. It's just like he's going to lose three to five games every single year. Uh, but, yeah, no, they had a couple of monster years under Tedford. I guess I the other, what happened in 2019. They needed a little Hainer. The other thing we didn't mention, well, they needed Kalen DeBoer is what they needed. Right? For sure. That was the year he was at Indiana. Uh, the other thing we didn't mention, speaking of college coaching, is that Seahawks quarterback coach Austin Davis was named offensive coordinator for Auburn under our old friend Brian Harson. So uh, I guess Brian Harson's keeping his job. I guess is what I'm taking from that. But uh, uh, good for Austin Davis. Definitely someone the Seahawks will miss, given his strong relationship with Russell Wilson after backing him up and now coaching him. Yeah. Uh, well, happy for Austin Davis to get that opportunity. For uh, sure. Definitely like a, a pretty solid first college job to come in as offense coordinator as a program like Auburn. I think it's cool to see. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I mean, before we go, also wanted to mention, uh, earlier today, I was thinking about had like a bit of a COVID close encounter or whatever. So I was going through and getting a PCR test at the like Renton health clinic. It's in the former emissions testing. I've been there before, um, the former emissions testing in downtown Renton. And was just thinking about the people who are working there and what an awesome job that they're doing. Being there every single day in the cold, outside, in the middle of a pandemic that keeps raging on, uh, making sure that people are getting through, getting appointments, you know, running it efficiently, having a positive attitude 
and just want to say to the amazing work that they're doing, also giving out vaccines at the exact same site. Uh, I was thinking about what an awesome job those people are doing uh, when I was there earlier today and wanted to mention that. So I know that there are a lot of people testing right now, a lot of people hopefully getting booster shots right now. And thought that was, it's such an awesome place. I know that there are tons of awesome places, um, but have been very impressed with them and everybody else who is sticking in there as we enter month 700 of this pandemic. And uh, uh, on that note, we'll be well, back. Oh, well, go ahead. First off, in addition to that, which is absolutely well said, and you know our healthcare workers who we stopped applauding like 698 months ago out of the pandemic, uh -huh. but they're still working hard. That, that hasn't changed. Uh, uh, want to make sure everyone wish everyone a safe, healthy, happy holidays over the next week here before uh, you hear from us again. And we'll be back next week with our year in Seattle sports. I haven't decided what's the best, better order for us to do the weekly pod and this yeah, we are in sports. I think the year in sports, give, give okay. the people what they want. You're in sports on Monday, weekly pod next Wednesday. And that will close out 2000, uh, barring any emergency pods. Who knows what emergency pods we might have between now and then. Uh, again, again, safe and happy and happy holidays to everyone. On that note, thanks for listening. Crack it!